Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Malachi chapter 1, if you will. And on Sunday mornings, we have been going through a series that we have entitled, For the Love of God. And we've been looking at one of the most dynamic characteristics of our Heavenly Father, and that, his, that is His love for us. But not only is this a look at from a theological perspective as we go through the Bible, but it also encases my personal story. For 32 years ago, at 16 years old, I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, my life was never the same again. It was His love that drew me. It was His love that saved me. It's His love that sustained me from that point going forward. I don't think the love of God can be talked about, stressed, or emphasized enough in each and every Sunday or Wednesday service because it is, again, one of the characteristics that when properly experienced will transform a life forever. Again, this is not a study just academically, theoretically, or even just simply theologically. It is also a hope that God would touch you with his love and show you how much he loves you and therefore allowing you to love others as he has loved you. And this morning we are now finding our way to the end of the Old Testament to address an issue that you will at one day find yourself within. You will experience it at one time or another. A, a period of time where you will either question the love of God towards you or more uh, distinctly, you even begin to doubt God's love towards you. It's easy to do. We are conditioned in our society to believe that when things are going well, oh, it's easy for us to understand that God loves us. But when things are going difficultly, when things aren't going the way we anticipated them going, when circumstances begin to challenge us and work against us, and those things that we never anticipated all of a sudden have occurred, it's at those times that we become vulnerable to the thinking that maybe God doesn't love me as much as I thought He did. Or He doesn't love me anymore. Let me begin by stating that I have found myself over the 32 years of being a Christian in this position where I have either questioned or doubted God's love towards me. It is at that moment in time that I think now I have realized that after all of these years, it is not my circumstances that dictates the understanding that God loves me or not. It is not where I find myself, what I'm experiencing. I cannot take those moments of great blessing and say, oh God, you love me. And then the very next day, if I find myself in a valley, say, oh God, you must not love me anymore. Because God did not say that he would solely show us his love through our circumstances that we might find us, ourselves surrounded by. For God says that he showed his love by sending his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Last week we looked at Psalm 136 together as a church. 
And as we did, we discovered that those in the Old Testament saw God as a loving God. They saw that all that God did on behalf of his kids, that is the nation and the children of Israel through the Old Testament, he did because he loved them. And we looked at Psalm 136 for the specific purpose of letting people know that the God of the Old Testament is exactly the same as the God of the New Testament. For many today, when they read, if they have ever read the Old Testament, often walk away with a picture of God uh, saying, well, you know what, That's, uh, he's much different than the New Testament Jesus. Jesus was so loving and compassionate and he was so caring and considerate, but the God of the Old Testament, this guy was an old grump. He just judged everybody, poured down fire, consumed everything. I don't know if I like that God. The issue is, is that the Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even though Jesus was all loving and compassionate and caring and so forth, he still ended up on the cross, didn't he? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is the same in our lives yesterday, today, and forever. Often it is not God who changes, it is us who change. It is not God whose love has been diminished for us. It's often our love for God that has been diminished. By the time we get to the end of the Old Testament, the children of Israel find themselves in very difficult circumstances. They have just been released from the Babylonian captivity. They are now back in their land. They are now trying to reestablish themselves as a nation. They are trying to once again get their feet underneath them as a people. They are hoping and praying that once again they would experience the zenith of their society as they once had under King David. And yet every moment that they came back into the land, they had one challenge after another. And these challenges began to wear on them to the point where we are about 110 years later from their return from Babylon into their own land. Nehemiah has just completed the wall. Zechariah and others have now completed the temple. And yet the wall and the temple were nothing like it once was. And those who were older and remembered the old wall around Jerusalem that protected and defended them. And those older individuals who remembered the, the temple of David, seeing this new temple, just looked at it and said, oh, it's never going to be anything like the old one was. Oh, it's nice and everything, but it's nothing compared to what it, we once had. And the younger individuals, because at one time they were encouraged by what they were experiencing, now they were being discouraged The older ones were discouraging these younger uh, Jewish individuals who were looking to find themselves once again in their land. And as a result, they began to grow discouraged and distraught. And by the time Malachi writes, we discover that they have lost the sense that God loves them. Again, This is something that can happen in any one of our lives, where our circumstances will shake us to the core, where we will look around ourselves and compare it to another period of time and conclude that for some reason God must love us less than he did before if he loves us 
at all. And Malachi begins by writing, he says in verse 2, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother? He's the older of the two, Esau is, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are to shatter, uh, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear it down. They will call uh, the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. As a result, the children of Israel did not realize that they were the chosen ones of God. Even in their predicament, in their difficulties, God is saying that you are the chosen one of God. I have been with you. I have protected you. I have regathered you to your land. I have defeated your enemies against you. I have stood up and I have protected you each and every step of the way. I have shown and demonstrated that you are the nation in which I have my hand upon and I have never ceased loving you. Look past your circumstances. Remember the history that I have with you and know and understand that I have loved you from the beginning and my love for you has never ceased. And as a result, they finally decided that they could not trust God. And they then decided to turn once again to the other gods of the pagan countries around them. And God says, why have you done such a thing? Why have you turned from me? Why have you... uh, gone and worship these other gods around you? Have I not been faithful to you from the very beginning? When we find ourselves in such circumstances, it is imperative that you and I once again remember all that God has done on our behalf. When we begin to doubt or to question the love of God, it is imperative that we just stand back, we take a moment of pause, and we rethink things. Take out the emotional equation. Because often when we decide to discern truth based on feelings alone, we often get them wrong, don't we? I don't feel this way. And God says, it's not a feeling, it's a fact that I love you and I've shown and demonstrated my love to you from the very beginning. I watched, uh, I should say, I saw something on Facebook the other day. It was about a couple that had been married for a long period of time and the caption read, they will forget what they said to each other, they will forget what they've done for each other, but they will never forget how they made each other feel. And I could not tell you how much I disagreed with that statement. I've been married for 25 years, and it's the best thing that's ever happened in my life. But you know, in my marriage, sometimes I feel great. And other times in my marriage, she's angry at me, and I'm not feeling so good. But I always know that she loves me. 
I always know that she's there for me. I always remember that which she has said to me and the promises that she has made to me and so forth. My feelings can change at a moment with a whim. I can be the happiest guy in the world and decide to watch old Yeller and complicate my life to no end. And yet, we base everything upon feelings. Where the saying of today is, oh, I don't get it, or I'm just not in the mood. Now it's, I'm not feeling it. I don't care if you're feeling it or not. Clean up your room. (laughs) There we got one parent in the crowd. The point of the matter is, is that feelings have dominated our culture to the point where we take feelings and equate them automatically with truth because we don't know how to discern what true and false is anymore. The children of Israel fell right into that gap, and so do we. As one wrote, he said, It is easy for people today to look down on the Israelites, wondering how they could have ever questioned God's love. Yet we forget how... Uh, quickly circumstances in our own lives change and in the lives of the people that we know also causes us to question God's love in circumstances such as sickness and poor health, the loss of a loved one, marital problems, the loss of a job or insufficient income, bankruptcy or failure of a business, loss of reputation or failure to be recognized or appreciated. Any one of these circumstances can trigger an emotion within us that would question God's love towards us. And if you walk with God for any length of period of time, you will see very quickly or discover very quickly that these circumstances will arise at one time or another. The relationship that God had with the children of Israel was that, that relationship of a parent with a child. And throughout the Old Testament, if you read it, you discover that parental uh, love that he had for the children of Israel from the very beginning. That parental love moves God not only to bless them when they should be blessed, but also to correct them when they need to be disciplined. Many parents today believe that the best course of parenting is to simply be my child's friend. Well, let me tell you, I think Our kids have enough friends, they need parents. And the difference between a parent and a friend is so great that the parent is so much uh, more of one who would be accurately able to love you than even your friends. Now many today, when their parents discipline them, they look at their parents through the eyes of, how could you possibly do this to me? It's because your parents are wise enough to know that one day you're going to have to be a responsible adult. And if by getting there it requires them to discipline you, then so be it. God is the exact same way. God chastens those in whom he loves. And while the children of Israel had concluded by the book of Malachi that God no longer loved them, what they didn't take into consideration is how they contributed to the reactions of God. They didn't take into account that they had provoked God into judging them and to correct them and to discipline them. And no better passage of Scripture illustrates this than that which is found in the book of Hosea. If you turn there with me, the book of Hosea chapter 11. 
If you've never read for yourselves the minor prophets, may I encourage you to do so. I believe that you will see God in a whole new light by doing so. I think they are some of the most neglected books of the Bible. And yet, much of the Old uh, New Testament is that actually quoting of the minor prophets. When I say minor prophets, I'm speaking from uh, Hosea all the way to Malachi. Uh, and each and every one of them, they're small, 15 chapters or less. But in them is such a rich wealth of information concerning the heart and the character of God. But for our study this morning, I want to demonstrate God's parental love for his people. And then I want to show you and demonstrate it how God once again reconfirmed to his people his love for them. He could have simply, you know, judged them. He could have cast them off. He said, fine, you don't think that I love you? So be it. Go and I'll do your own thing. I'm going to go do my own thing and let's just call it. But I think that you'll be amazed by the manner in which God responds to his people to once again demonstrate the incredible depth of love that he has for his people. In the 11th chapter of the book of Hosea, listen to these words and let's just read them together. And notice, if you will, the parental language that is found on God's behalf within him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. It's not hard to see the parental love of God towards his people. I was there when I brought you out of the land of Egypt, looking at it as their birth as a nation. I was there with you each and every step of the way, and the more I was with you, the more I called you, the more you wandered away from me. I taught Ephraim to walk, verse 3. Thinking of those pictures of the parent holding their child's arms up as they're learning to walk. I think is a picture that each and every one of us may have in our family albums, showing and demonstrating, taking each step with the child. That was the heart of God towards them. I healed them, but they did not recognize it. It was cords of kindness and bands of love. I even eased their burdens, and I bent down to feed them. It's a, it's, it's a parental uh, sentence in the Hebrew. It just means a parent feeding a child. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because their own counsels. My people are bent 
They're stiff-necked on turning from me. And though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like a man? How can I treat you like Zebulun? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again, again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One who is in your midst. I will not come in wrath. And they shall go after the Lord, and he will roar like a lion when he roars. His children should come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return to them to their homes and declares the Lord, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. It was their rebellion against God that God therefore was then required to bring about discipline and chastisement to them. But notice very clearly that his love for them never ceased. He saw them as his child. And what parent, even when strained to the point that you think the relationship will break completely, the parent still kindles love in their heart for their child. And as a result, the children of Israel continuously provoked God to the point where they did not believe that he was with them any longer or loved them any longer. And yet as a result, they suffered the consequences that he would have spared them from. The children of Israel did not fully understand the depth and the richness of the love that God had for them. And yet instead of submitting to that love and walking with them in that love, walking with him in that love, they decided to continuously rebel against God. And after being taken into captivity, released from captivities and the difficulties they experienced for those many, many years until the book of Malachi was written, they are now questioning God's love completely to the point where they don't acknowledge the love any longer. So the question that I am then posed with is that how did God remedy the circumstance? How did God draw his people back to him once again? or at least attempt to draw his people back to him once again. What was God to do? Well, what is interesting to me is that after the pen was set to the side, after the letter of Malachi was written by the prophet Malachi, the messenger of God, there was a 400-year period of silence in the land where God had not come to his people God had not uh, spoken to his people through any prophet in whom he had raised up. And as a result, they now began to wonder and uh, consider, has God fully abandoned us? Has God left us alone? And after the 400-year duration of time, they now find themselves under the incredible burden of the oppression of the Roman Empire. God has been silent. 
The religious leaders now have become so corrupt in the land of uh, Israel and uh, Jerusalem that many in the Jewish uh, heritage, the ethnic Jewish population, no longer desired to follow God whatsoever because all they saw there in Jerusalem was a corruption within the priesthood. It was all about money. It was all hypocrisy. It was a state that was failing greatly. God must have abandoned us, for look, the Roman Empire is over us. And many began to walk away. They just began to disregard God altogether. They just came to the conclusion that their summation, their conclusion that Malachi addressed had to be right. That God no longer loved them. Because all they saw from their perspective was high taxes, corruption in the priesthood, corruption when they came to bring their offerings onto God there in Jerusalem, to the point that the priests were making millions of dollars each and every year on the backs of poor people. And they were so corrupt that the Jewish people found that the religious leaders of their time had no no desire to follow after the laws of God, but they were absolutely uh, uh, pivoted on the fact that everyone else should. And so they were so cruel and they're critical towards everyone. And Jerusalem was a mess, an absolute, utter mess. And then all of a sudden, something happened where this star appeared in the sky and broke through the darkness. And there born in a manger, in a barn, to a simple woman named Mary was Jesus, the Savior. And his birth heralded in God's response to their conclusion. You don't think that I love you any longer? How much more can I love you than this? Here is my only son to die on your behalf. As Jesus began to grow as an individual at 13 years old, he absolutely just stymied the religious leaders there in Jerusalem because of his incredible knowledge of the Word of God. He should have known it. He wrote it. His parents, because of the swollen population of Jerusalem there at that moment, left without him. Did you know Joseph and Mary left their Jesus behind They lost their kid. How would you like to stand before God the Father? I'm so sorry we lost Jesus, (laughs) you know. And I'm not talking about him being stolen out of the manger every Christmas. I'm talking about they lost him in, in Jerusalem. And when they came back to find him, he was teaching in the temple. And then there's years of silence until at 30 years old, he is baptized by one crazy individual named John who has been out in the wilderness calling the nation of Israel back to repentance, back to God. Not one of the religious leaders in their superficial, self-righteous piety, but this crazy individual eating locusts and honey out in the wilderness proclaiming that the one who they have always anticipated is coming. 
their Messiah. And finally, after one afternoon of baptizing, as he is baptizing there in the Jordan River, he looks up and there he sees Jesus coming to be baptized and he realizes that this is the Lamb of God. And you know the story, of course. Jesus was then baptized. The heavens broke open. The Spirit of God came down like a dove and a voice from the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus then began his public ministry, changing the world, turning things upside down, confronting the corruption of the religious leaders vehemently, and showing compassion to those who have been spurned, those who have been disenfranchised from God by the religious leaders, eating with tax collectors and sinners, as the Bible states. This was unprecedented. But to demonstrate to these people that God still loves them as their heavenly Father, we come to Luke 15, if you will, in your Bibles. And Jesus is there ministering to these people who have been cast off by the society. The Bible calls them tax collectors, which were Jewish individuals who then uh, were allowed themselves to be employed by the Roman Empire, showing greater allegiance to Rome than to their Jewish uh, family, their Jewish heritage. And they were collecting taxes on the basis uh, for Rome. And as a result, they were hated by their Jewish brethren. And nobody wanted to deal with them. As they would walk into a city, they would be spat upon. The dung that was left over from the ox carts would be slung at them. They were hated. No one associated with them. Many of them, when claiming their allegiance to Rome, their own personal families left them. They did so out of desperation. They did so because they felt it was the only way to survive the difficulties in which they were experiencing. And they were absolutely outcast because of it. But then you had the others that were absolutely uh, inclined to do the opposite of everything that God wanted them to do. Everything from prostitution to drunkenness to partying to just simply doing whatever they wanted to do at any given time. And it was these people that Jesus began to interact with. And he began to minister to and call back to God. And as a result, the persecution of the religious leaders became very fierce against Jesus. To the point where they believed that each and every time that Jesus would sit with these people, eat with these people, have something to drink with these people, he was defiling himself and therefore no longer able to proclaim the word of God. But little did those religious leaders know that it wasn't the individuals touching Jesus that was defiling him. It was Jesus who was touching them and cleansing them from all sin. And as we make our way to Luke 15, it is at the height of the ministry of Jesus between 30 years of old and 33 years of age. And he is being now criticized by the religious leaders greatly. And in response to their criticism to help educate and to lead by example the disciples in whom he had gathered, he teaches them by three parables. 
one of a lost lamb, one of a lost coin, and one of a lost son. And in each case, he is challenging the religious leaders by also encouraging and educating his disciples at the exact same time. And in each and every case, something is lost and something is found. The first one is a shepherd who finds himself in a field with a hundred sheep. And Jesus says, well, if one of those hundred go astray, does not the shepherd leave the 99 in a safe place and go after the one who is lost? The conclusion of the crowd would be yes. The conclusion from the disciples would be yes. Any shepherd who cared for his sheep would go after those who were lost. It was a rhetorical question. It was a question that caused the people around them to think and to consider what Jesus was saying. Now that sheep, if it wasn't for the shepherd going after him, would be incapable of finding his way out of his predicament. It was saying that many who are found lost cannot find their way home, and therefore God says, I go after them to bring them home. And then in verse 8, there is the story of the lost coin. Verse 8, if you'll read there with me. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you that there is joy before the angels over, of God over one sinner who repents. The coin that she is speaking about is a coin that was probably most likely attached to a necklace that she wore. It's interesting, we call it a necklace, but she didn't wear it around her neck, she wore it around her head. And this was the symbol to all of that society that she was married. And losing one of those coins was very, very detrimental. It meant uh, a disregard for the actual marriage. This was very, very important to the woman who had lost this coin. But an interesting idea about the coin I think Jesus wanted to bring forward in this story is this. If you had a coin that was worth a million dollars and you lost that coin, what value is that coin to you while it is lost? It's no value to you. You cannot redeem it. You cannot benefit from it in any way, shape, or form. It is not until the coin is found that that becomes beneficial to you. And Jesus is saying is that these people apart from me, they are not beneficial for the kingdom of God, but when they are found, that's when they are valuable to the kingdom of God. And again, as the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents, this leads us to the story of the prodigal son. And within this story is one of the greatest demonstrations of God's love towards us. Jesus climaxed it. A Jewish person teaching would use three parables, three illustrations. The third illustration would be the illustration that is meant to climax and to tie the other two previously given within it. He is now saying this is the important one. 
And he begins in verse 11. And there was a man who had two sons. So within the parable, there is a father with two sons. The father is a representation of God. The two sons are representations of two Jewish individuals who were part of the nation of Israel, part of the covenant, part of God's children. And as a result, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of of, uh, property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far-off country. He literally asked his father for something that was reprehensible there in that culture. Give me my inheritance before you die. It was like saying to your father, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine and let me go and do what I want to do with what is mine. And God is saying to his people that those who have left still want the benefit of being God's people, but they don't have any desire for God himself. And they took the prosperity and they took the wealth that the father had given him and he left and he rebelled against his father to a far off country. But then something happened like it always happens. This individual feeling like he's fully in control of his own destiny. He knows what's best for himself could have never imagined what happens next. So often when we rebel against God... We do so because we are saying to God, God, that's it. I know what's best for me. I don't need you in any way, shape, or form in my life. If I do need you, I'll reach out to you. But in most cases, I have it set in and of myself. I have no need for you. And so he left. Of course, not knowing what the future would bring. Not knowing what tomorrow would bring thinking that he is now in control of all things. And notice what happens. There he went into the far country, verse 13, and there he squandered his uh, property in reckless living. The word squander means toss it to the wind. He just lived it up. He took that little bit of inheritance that he had that was supposed to last him his whole entire life and he just blew it all. How often do we see this happen? How often do we see this happen amongst individuals who were entrepreneurs that made millions out of nothing? They themselves could manage their money so, uh, so um, uh, wisely and yet their offspring when they inherit the billions that they're left squander it within a short period of time because there's no value to it it doesn't mean to them the same thing that it meant to the father who earned it or gave it to them and so he squandered it to the point in which he was left with nothing and in verse 14 and when he had spent everything a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who set him into the fields to feed pigs. This was the lowest that an individual could go. 
Pork was one of the defiled foods that the Jewish people could not interact with. It was one of the foods that was prohibited to them in the law due to the fact that pork uncooked properly is dangerous. But yet he found himself at a very low point to the point where he found himself doing something that he never would have done elsewise. And as a result, he became hungry and was longing to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. Jesus is saying to those who have rebelled, this is the end result. It's going to lead you to nothing, to destruction, to something that you don't want to deal with. It's going to bring you to the very end of yourself. But then this young man had a capacity within him that the sheep did not and that the coin could have not. This young man had a capacity to come to his senses, to realize that it was better at home with dad than it is here on, out in my own. He realized that he had made a great, great error. He realized that he had sinned greatly. And all he could hope is that his father would bring him back as a hired servant. And in verse 17, but when he came to himself, I love that phrase, He said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And in verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But, and this is the point in which Jesus was trying to illustrate to all of those who were around. This time, the father did not go after his child. He allowed his child to experience the things that he desired to experience But we notice something about the father here that is absolutely extraordinary. That though the father did not run after him, the father was continuously waiting for his return. The father would anticipate his son's return each and every day. And we are going to discover that while the son was still a long way off, the father reacted in such a way that was unbecoming of any dignified Jewish man in that culture. He threw the door open and ran to his son who he saw a long way off and embraced him. God is saying to his people, those who come back to me, this is the manner in which you will be received unto me. But come back to me. Realize the futility of wasting your life in this regard. Turn and come back and be mine. And notice with me how the father responded in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, excuse me, back up. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, which means against God and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and now is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Individuals in that culture listening to this story would have been appalled by the fact that the father ran in such an undignified manner. The only, the only aspect of one's heart that would allow him to run in such a socially undignified way is his great love for his son. His love for his son who was wayward and is now returning triumphed over the fact of me being dignified to the society around me. I don't care what the society around me thinks. He, my son's coming home. He was dead, now he's alive. He was lost and he was found. The religious leaders couldn't bear to listen to this undoubtedly. This was appalling to them because his son had done everything so vastly vile against the father that he should literally be stoned for everything that he has done. Even if he has shown the repentance that, that is described here in our parable by Jesus. The disciples are learning that God is working and he's working amongst the people, but it isn't the upper echelon. It isn't the social elite. It isn't the, the realm of intellectualism. It is the lowly, average, common people that are appreciating what God is doing in and through Jesus. And as a result, the disciples then realize that they could minister to such people because Jesus ministered to such people. But Jesus isn't going to let, let it end there. He needs to address the self-righteous attitude of the religious leaders that unfortunately, I believe, also encompasses many of our hearts today. He needed to show that real ministry is messy he needed to show that these people that the world has considered to be nobody are, is everything in the mind and the heart of God. These people that society has simply written off and are really no use, no value, can't find themselves uh, the way home. They, they are no value to anyone until they are found. Jesus is saying, I'm going after them and so should we. But notice the older son. The older son in that culture was the one who should have been the moderator between the father and the younger son. The older son held this responsibility and yet the father went directly to the younger son. It was Jesus saying, since the religious leaders so, were so corrupt and so hypocritical and that they were not representing God properly, I'm going to sidestep them altogether and I'm going to go get them myself. That's exactly what he said. And now the older son was in the field. And he came and he drew near to the house 
He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. He said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, that is the older brother, was angry and refused to go into the celebration. That's what he means here. And his father then came out and entreated him, begged him to come in. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, it's a very derogatory term in the Greek, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted the fattened calf for him and he said to him son you are always with me and all that I have and, and all that is mine is yours it is fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive he was lost and is found the Bible says that those who are forgiven much love much when I read this some 30 years ago, for the very first time, I certainly identified with the younger of the two sons. To think that God ran to me to find me, to have compassion upon me, to save me, and to restore me by putting feet on, sandals on my feet and to put a robe around me and a signet ring to allow me to once again be part of the family, that repentance could take place and that restoration could occur. I've always said to myself that if I could ever continue the ministry that God has started, I would always be continuously looking for people that the world has cast out. We have to make a decision here at this church. If we decide that this church is all about us and we are going to come and make it a safe, clean place, undefiled by anything of the world, then we are going to shrivel and die as a church. We have to get our hands dirty. We have to say that if we believe in Jesus Christ, we are going to take it to people who do not believe. We are going to share the same love that he has for us with others. I have to be honest with you. I have a very difficult time believing that someone can actually truly be saved and have no desire to share their faith with someone who does not know Jesus Christ. The reason being is that why do you believe it's something only to be kept to yourself? Why do you believe it's something that shouldn't be offered to someone else in the position that you were once in yourself? Why do we believe that it's no longer our responsibility to begin to minister to the world around us? Why is it? Is it because we don't believe that we know enough? Your story, your testimony is sufficient to begin a conversation with someone who doesn't know Jesus. Is it that you don't have enough biblical knowledge? Let me give you the biblical knowledge that you need. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whomsoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's it. 
please let us reconsider where we are at with the Lord. We have been doing this church now going on 22 years. When we started this church, it was all about reaching the lost. When we had the Bible study, it was all about inviting friends and family who did not know the Lord so that they could come to know the Lord. And you know what happened? God honored it by a goofy group of people who just simply said, God, if you want to use us, then use us for your glory and we'll do whatever you ask us to do. I love you more than you could possibly ever imagine, but I want you to know that I'm trying to equip you to fulfill the work of the ministry that God has for you. You know, we can be Christians on Christmas and Easter if that's what we so desire. We can come to church each and every Sunday, but are we becoming more like Jesus or are we unfortunately becoming more like the Sadducees and the Pharisees? where our own self-righteous and our own uh, pride is blinding us from the fact that the world is dying and going to hell around us? Why is it that we feel that prayer is always the last option in our lives when it should be the very first thing that we opt to each and every day of our life? Folks, I'm not getting on you because I'm trying to beat you up in any way, shape, or form, but I just want to let you know that I know a lot of people personally who do not know Christ, and that bothers me. Because I know that it's all going to come to an end. This opportunity, this time of grace, the time in which the gospel can go forward in the manner in which it is, and we're keeping it to ourselves, and we're kind of saying, you know, I don't know what's happening in the world around us. It's all going to hell in a handbastic, so, so be it. I don't care. Let's wash our hands of it and just kind of move on. No, it's time to get dirty again. We are going to be bringing in a book that was just released this week by one of my favorite pastors, Greg Laurie. He has written a book now in the twilight of his ministry, as he says. He's 65 Um, I don't know why that's the twilight, but he wrote about the last great revival in America. I couldn't put it down. It talks about how this church started, this actual church. It talked about why the Calvary chapels started, what was willing to happen within the Calvary chapels to allow God to work the way he did in and through them for not just 10, 20, 30, but 50 years now. And he describes and explains everything that has occurred from the beginning until now. And he believes that we are now seeing in our social and our our culture once again the same backdrop that was there in the 60s and 70s that allowed God to work like God wanted to work. But the question was, do we want to see him work again the way he once did? Do we desire, are we desperate enough to say, God, please bring revival to our land? And it starts with us. It's not with the world that this is going to start. It starts with us in our hearts. And frankly, the apathy and the carnality and the, the comfortable aspects of Christianity have become all too pleasing to the church of America. Guys, we don't need smoke machines and lights and everything to enter into worship, do we? It doesn't matter what technological advances a church has. It doesn't mean that the Spirit of God is moving within that church. What matters is the heart of the people of that church. 
a heart of a people of a church that cannot go to bed at night because the next door neighbor is dying and going to hell. The heart of the church that says, you know what, our church is gathering together to pray for our community. I'm going to take some time away from uh, my life and I'm going to go pray with them because what God wants is more than, it's more important than what I want. Guys, it's time. I'm doing this series because I want people's lives to be changed. I want you to be so radically transformed by the love of God that you cannot keep it to yourself. Why do I say this? Because if God the Father is saying that he depicts himself in a man running in a robe, undignified in that culture and in that society, why can't we get off of our derrieres and start serving God and witnessing for him and asking God to do great things in and through us? If Jesus Christ was willing to do this on our behalf, why are we not willing to do it on others' behalf? Some will say, oh, this is too radical of a Christianity. It's not the type of Christianity. Or I, I'm not called to do that. Every single Christian is called to do this. God did not save you to put you on the bench. God did not save you just so you could be a spectator in the stands clapping along. God saved you because he has a place for you within the body of Christ so he can continue the ministry in and through you that he started through the person of Christ. Hey, you know what? Jesus turned the world upside down with 12 people. We've got more than that here today. It's up to you. I'm just telling you that I have said to the Lord that I know I'm 50, but Lord, as long as I have breath... I'm going to glorify you with it. And I'm going to start getting my hands dirty again and start ministering to people. We already see it happening. We see it happening at the youth group on Friday nights. We don't know where they're all coming from, but they're coming. And I'm so thankful for them. I leave that youth group every single Friday with a little less hair. No, uh, so encouraged, so pumped up. Guys, I never wanted to be a spectator. When I played sports, I was always on the second string. Or I rode the bench the vast majority of the time in the season. When I became a Christian, I said, Lord, I don't want to ride the bench. Use me for your glory. Whatever it means, use me for your glory. I want everyone to consider what God did to show his people that he loved them, that he was to do such undignified things as being born in a manger, the God of all creation, to be raised by Mary and Joseph, to learn to be a carpenter, to then start his public ministry and to be despised by the entire society except those who were far off and cast off and far from God. And then all of a sudden he confronts the religious leaders and it's like two enormous uh, titans clashing heads and this carpenter, this 30-year-old carpenter from Nazareth is standing there in the authority and the power of God and the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he was God. He says, this is what it's all about. This, showing the mercy and the compassion and the kindness to those who are repentant people. How did God win his people back? He loved them even more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Oh Lord, how have you loved us? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
Lord, you don't seem to love us any longer for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You get the point. You get the picture. 